Recalibrating the War on Terror, today, Thursday, May 23rd. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. President Obama issues new guidelines for U.S. counterterrorism policy. He says it can no longer be a boundless war on terror. So America's at a crossroads. We must define the nature and scope of this struggle, or else it will define us. We'll hear what that could mean. This Yemen expert says fewer drone strikes and more captures could make a big difference there. Obviously, dead men tell no tales, but if you have someone that you picked up, you can gain a lot more intelligence from him than you can from a corpse. Also today, should yesterday's murder of a soldier in London be called terrorism? And later, Nigeria's Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie on her new novel, Americana. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman in Boston. This is The World. It's hard to discuss something when you don't know the full details. And until today, that's sort of been the deal with America's drone policy. But today, President Obama shed new light on when and how the U.S. uses unmanned aerial vehicles to target militants and terrorism suspects abroad. Obama spoke at the National Defense University in Washington, outlining a strategy for combating threats to national security. We have to recognize that the threat has shifted and evolved from the one that came to our shores on 9-11. With a decade of experience now to draw from, this is the moment to ask ourselves hard questions about the nature of today's threats and how we should confront them. There were two big topics in that speech that we're going to focus on, drones, which we just mentioned, and the president's renewed pledge to close a prison in Guantanamo Bay. The world's Arun Roth joins us to break down the president's speech. Thanks for coming in, Arun. Thanks, Marco. Now, in spite of all the controversy, or perhaps because of it, the president has had practically nothing to say in public about drone operations till today. So first, let's hear him outlining some of the issues. This new technology raises profound questions about who is targeted and why, about civilian casualties and the risk of creating new enemies, about the legality of such strikes under U.S. and international law, about accountability and morality. Yeah, big questions indeed. So, Arun, how did the president say he'd answered these profound questions? Well, it's interesting. It seemed like there was a lot more in there about starting a process than really about filling in a lot of gaps and details. Uh, we wanted to hear something more about the the, the uh, command and decision process ab- about this. We heard the president has come out with a, uh, there's a paper, they've created a legal framework. He signed it. We don't see it yet. We don't know what it is. He talked about establishing more oversight for the drone strikes and starting a dialogue with Congress, but he didn't say exactly what that would be. He talked about forms that it might take, that it could be take the form of a special court, special oversight, possibilities, the talk, the beginning of dialogue, but not really clear answers on some clarity on this. So you, you didn't really feel that uh, you got a clear sense of what the changes are going to be? No, there was a lot of talk coming in today about there was going to be a transferring of power for drone strikes moving away from the CIA more into the military's hands. There were no details like that in this speech, none of the nitty gritty sort of stuff that we might have been expecting. Now, uh, President Obama said that the use of drones has been legal. He cited a congressional act that authorizes their use. Um, he also says that in the last four years, he's been 
working to codify this, but uh, uh, I'm just wondering, when did the White House realize that the self-defense notion wasn't really working? You know, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, President Obama brought up the authorization for the use of military force going back to the post 9-11. And he himself pointed out that it's sort of getting to strain the justification for that at, the, at this stage. And he talked about wanting to revisit that actually with Congress. That was sort of surprising. Arun, let's move, let's move over to the topic of Guantanamo Bay and the president's renewed pledge to, to close it. Let's listen to what he had to say about that. And given my administration's relentless pursuit of al-Qaeda's leadership, there is no justification beyond politics for Congress to prevent us from closing a facility that should, should have never been opened. Today, so... All right, Arun, uh, we heard there a heckler. Tell us what was going on. That was probably the most remarkable uh, moment. Well, I say a moment. It actually extended because she interrupted him several more times. It was amazing she was able to talk to the extent that she was. He talked about his desire to close Guantanamo, and she shouted out with, you can close you can close Guantanamo today. Clearly some anger that he wasn't taking more control of the situation, which in context, uh, he was actually saying he wasn't saying he would he had a specific plan, didn't have stages he was going to go to. Again, he was saying I, he wanted to engage with Congress and he called on Congress to lift the restrictions on transferring prisoners, but didn't talk about specific acts that he would take beyond appointing a new envoy to speed up the transfer of detainees. If the idea is to close a prison at Guantanamo, is pushing it to Congress a solution? Will that work? Well, he needs Congress to do that. But there are things that he could do. There's discussion that he might even be able to, through waivers, be able to still transfer the detainees. But he needs the help of Congress. Arun, was there anything you were expecting to hear from the president but didn't today? Well, again, we didn't really hear much about the specifics in terms of the drone program transferring the, the who is actually making these decisions, whether it's going to be more of the CIA or, or the uh, or the military. And in terms of Guantanamo, again, he talked about his desire, talked about engaging with Congress, but there's not much of a specific plan to, to actually get from A to B and close down the facility there. Well, the world's Arun Ra. Thanks for the input. Thanks, Marco. Now, one line in President Obama's speech today is surely reverberating in Pakistan. Obama said that among the stringent conditions that must be met before a drone strike is approved is respect for a state's sovereignty. That has long been a central point in Pakistani complaints about U.S. drone strikes in their country. Reporter Fahad Desmukh is in Karachi, Pakistan. The issue, the fundamental issue, is about sovereignty rather than um, extrajudicial killings. It's about the fact that the United States is conducting this uh, unilaterally, uh, supposedly, rather than the Pakistani military, which I would think there would be much more of a stomach for if it was the Pakistani military doing this, uh, or even if the relationship was more transparent, if uh, it was made public that both the Pakistani government and the United States government are um, have been part of the decision to take these drone attacks. So how do Pakistanis see the issue of sovereignty getting solved with the continued scale back of drones? Uh, right now, uh, as you know, there have been some uh, elections recently and there's been a lot of talk about um, what should be done. Uh, and also, I should let you know that there was a, a high court a decision by the Peshawar High Court, which was fairly significant. This was uh, a few weeks ago, in which it said that uh, the uh, Pakistani government needs to bring an end to these drone strikes. Uh, and it said uh, it suggested that one of the first things the Pakistani uh, needs to do, it didn't suggest rather, it ordered the Pakistani government, was to take this matter up in international forums like the United Nations and the International Criminal and the International Court of Justice. I mean, one might also su suggest that Pakistan bring it up with the United States, but given the level of distrust that's cropped up between the two countries in recent years, how likely is it that the U.S. would work closely with their Pakistani counterparts? 
Marco, despite the differences between the two governments and between the two militaries, uh, and also the growing resentment and anger amongst the public in Pakistan towards the U.S., it seems to be that there are just sort of brief lulls and overall the cooperation continues just because they need to. It doesn't seem as though there's been a huge fundamental change in which uh, the two allies have now become foes. So, And even the rhetoric which is coming out from uh, everyone, even uh, Nawaz Sharif, who's likely to be the next prime minister uh, and has just won this big election, even from him, uh, there isn't uh, overt belligerency. He's saying that, you know, we need to sit down and, and talk with the Americans and figure this stuff out rather than, um, you know, rather than violence or rather than breaking off ties. Well, I mean, uh, how real is a possibility that Pakistan would demand U.S. drone strikes stop or even shoot down U.S. drones? Uh, Nawaz Sharif and Imran Khan uh, are now are saying that they want, they're going to oppose the attacks and, um, you know, again, bring it up in international forums. Uh, but uh, whatever the politicians are saying, that's going to be separate from what is uh, of, uh, separate from who actually decides policy, uh, security, and foreign affairs policy in Pakistan, and that's the military. Mm. So uh, you know, Nawaz Sharif and Imran Khan might not be uh, might not have to negotiate with the United States as much as they might want to be negotiating with the own, with its own military to if they want to have any significant change in policy. Reporter Fahad Desmouk in Karachi. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Marco. Another nation that's often been on the receiving end of U.S. drone strikes is Yemen. And one voice from Yemen that's been especially vocal about drones is journalist and activist Farai al-Muslimi. He thinks the U.S. drone program has alienated many Yemeni civilians, as he told a Senate panel last month. When they think of America, they think of the terror they feel from the drones that hover over their heads, ready to fire missiles at any time. What the violent militants had previously failed to achieve one drone strike accomplished in an instant. We called al-Muslimi today, and he said he was encouraged by the shift in U.S. drone policy, but was worried that attacks might not end. We relayed that thought to Gregory Johnson. He's the author of The Last Refuge, Yemen, Al-Qaeda, and America's War in Arabia. Well, I think he's right to be concerned. And, and Faria is obviously someone who, in a very real sense, lives under drones every day. Hopefully the results of the speech will be that the U.S. will be much more judicious and much more restrained in its use of drones. So it'll take away things like signature strikes, which the CIA in the past has referred to as as crowd killing. These are the strikes that you don't necessarily need to know the particular identities of individuals on the ground in order to carry out an attack. Yeah, but do you think that the U.S. will actually shift the the actions from drone strikes to, say, you know, SEAL Team 6 going to these countries to pick up these targets? Well, it doesn't have to be SEAL Team 6. This doesn't have to be a a sort of a binary decision between the U.S. either killing these individuals or the U.S. putting troops on the ground. If the Obama administration is really serious about doing what it says it's doing, which is reducing and being much more judicious with how it uses drone strikes abroad, then I think that will force the Obama administration to work more closely in countries like Yemen with the partner governments there in order to capture some of these individuals. And this, I think, has a real benefit for U.S. counterterrorism. Obviously, dead men tell no tales. But if you have someone that you've picked up, you can gain a lot more intelligence from him than you can from a corpse. So if the Yemeni forces could do it, uh, why didn't they do it? 
We have to remember that part of this equation is Guantanamo Bay. The Bush administration captured a lot of people and it put them in Guantanamo Bay. The Obama administration has killed a lot of people and not necessarily captured a lot of people because the legal underpinnings, that policy, still seems to be something that the administration is a little unsure of. Gregory, you're a big drone critic. Does it seem to you like the the Obama administration is really coming to terms with all of this? I think in many ways that they are. And and I, I would classify myself not so much as a drone critic, but rather a critic of how it is that the administration uses this particular tool. I think drones can be a very powerful and a very effective weapon. They can do a lot of good for the United States. But if used incorrectly, if overused, If the U.S. comes to depend so entirely on drones, as it seems that they have in the past four years, then I think drones can do more harm than good. The fewer drone strikes that there are in a country like Yemen, the fewer civilians that are killed, that opens up a lot more space for the Yemeni tribesmen and the Yemeni clerics, the only ones who are in a position to decisively defeat al-Qaeda. So are you saying the the U.S. drone program looks better now? I'm saying that that what it is that the president is moving towards is much better than it was in the past. I think there's still room for improvement. And I hope that what we heard today is not just political rhetoric, but that, in fact, it does signify some concrete action on the on the side of the U.S. Gregory Johnson, the author of The Last Refuge, Yemen, Al-Qaeda and America's War in Arabia. Thanks, as always. Thank you, Marco. If you follow President Obama's speech today on refocusing on counterterrorism policy, we'd love to hear from you. You can converse with us on Twitter. We tweet at PRI The World. And for a fuller conversation, come to theworld.org. Still ahead, just what happened yesterday in London. You're listening to The World on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Today, I am a man. Those are the traditional coming-of-age words for Jewish boys getting bar mitzvahed. But there are lots of different coming-of-age ceremonies and rituals. The world's Anders Kelto is following the lives of students at a public high school in Cape Town, South Africa. That'd be the Center of Science and Technology, or COSAT. And Anders, most of the kids there at COSAT belong to the Xhosa ethnic group, and they have their own ritual for becoming men. Well, the ritual is called a traditional circumcision. Basically, a group of boys gets together and goes to a remote location up in the mountains with some of their elders, and they go through a sort of secretive ritual that includes getting circumcised. Basically, they come back from that ceremony having transformed from boys into men in an almost magical kind of way, at least in their minds. And when they come back, they wear completely different clothes. In fact, they actually throw away most of their old clothes and have a completely new wardrobe. They wear these hats and blazers and a collared shirt buttoned up to the top button. Kind of uh, changing your short pants for long pants. What do the hats look like? Most of them wear, they actually look like golf hats with a sort of round tassel on top. Like the old tam shanters Yeah, exactly. Some of them wear hats that look a little bit more like cowboy hats. And if they're wearing one of these, you know what's going on, right? Yeah, especially when you see them wearing that hat with a blazer and their button-down shirt. Now, before we go on, you said these are boys who go into the bush and they go through the ceremony. But we're talking 
17, 18, 19-year-old young men. I mean, a circumcision at that age, is it painful? What do they say about this? Pretty much all of them will tell you at some point it becomes very painful. It may take a day or two or three days for the pain to really set in. More importantly, it can be very dangerous because some of the men who conduct these circumcisions, they're not medical professionals. They're doing this according to a tradition that's very old. And sometimes the blades that they use are not clean. Boys get infected. They can get gangrene. They can get infections that can even kill them. In fact, it's very dangerous and controversial. So presumably withstanding the pain is also part of this ritual of becoming a man. What do the boys say about their new status, about the way others even look at them? Well, they definitely walk with a certain swagger, a certain confidence about them. They certainly see themselves differently. And I talked to one boy at COSAT the other day who told me that even girls see him in a new way now. I used to go after girls, and uh, I, I, was, I didn't have any luck. This year now, it is different. They want me to be their, their man. Does that young man have any illusions? I mean, do the girls see it this way too? Well, it's funny. Once he told me that, I thought, you know what, I better get the other side of the story. So <laughs> yeah. I found a couple of girls at school today, and I asked them what they thought. Are you, are you more attracted to them once they're a man? <laughs> it doesn't play a role. It doesn't play a role. You don't become more... You're not attracted to a person before you became a man. It doesn't mean you'll be attracted to him after he's a man. So it's not like you, you look at a guy and you're like, wow, look at that guy in that hat. Like, I'm so into him now because he's a man. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, so that young woman doesn't really buy it. What else did the girls say? Well, some of the girls said that the boys do go through a transformation. Some of them act more mature, but some of them sort of go the opposite way. I mean, one girl said that a lot of boys become unruly. They think that they don't have to respect their parents anymore. They don't have to respect their teachers at school, and they can become kind of a pain. Anders, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you. There's been this big push, fairly well publicized, to get more men circumcised in Africa at a younger age as a preventive measure against contracting HIV. Is this ritual of circumcision at the age of 17 or so, has it been clashing with some basic public health messages? It has. The government is somewhat opposed to these traditional circumcisions because they're dangerous, but also because they happen after an age at which some boys have become sexually active. So medical experts in the government want circumcision to take place early in life, but traditional leaders feel like to do that is to deprive their boy of their manhood, and they want to preserve what they say is a very important cultural tradition of waiting until the boy is 18. Well, listeners, you can see what some of the newly minted men look like at theworld.org. We've got a few photos of them in their golf caps. And Anders, for listeners who want to follow your coverage of a year at COSAT, they can find me on Twitter using the hashtag schoolyear and online at theworld.org. The world's Anders Kelto in Cape Town. Thanks so much. Thanks, Marco. So I work in a newsroom that has its fair share of Brits. Many of them have lived here in the U.S. for years. Along the way, they've picked up some Americanisms. And we Americans, we've picked up some of their expressions. Struth. It's not just happening in our newsroom. Struth again. Americans are saying things that a generation ago were strictly British. Here's the world's Patrick Cox. Ben Yagoda writes a blog called Not One-Off Britishisms, one-off being one such Britishism now used by Americans. Yagoda also teaches English at the University of Delaware, and what got him started on listing these Americanized Brit words was this. The verb uh, to go missing. This expression was missing from American English until, well, Yagoda thinks it was when a journalist called Helen Kennedy 
used it in 2001 to describe the disappearance of congressional intern Chandra Levy. Kennedy is, as she puts it, half American, half Irish, raised in England and Italy, a linguistic mutt. And so, in Yagoda's words, Go Missing was arguably blown to these shores like some exotic seed by someone who learned it in the UK. Another one is ginger. To refer to what Americans might have called a redhead. Now, ginger's increasingly popular here. I ascribe that in some large part to the Harry Potter books, where, of course, Ron is described as a ginger. Right now, we're seeing a lot of it in the U.S., in particular, the Britishisms being used there. This is Lynn Murphy, a linguist at the University of Sussex in Britain. Her blog is called Separated by a Common Language. Her top British to American words for the past five years are bollocks, kettling, ginger, go missing, and to vet. The internet, movies, expat journalists, Americans who want to sound hip, they've all contributed to this trend. But Murphy says that's only part of the picture. In terms of words, yes, we're getting more and more words in common. Pronunciation-wise, we're getting much further apart. What? Even with so many Americans, like Murphy, living in the UK, and so many Brits, like me, living in the US... The vowels, say, in the southeast of England are all going frontward in the mouth, and I believe in the major American dialects they're going upward. So they're getting quite different. That's a relief. Neither Brits nor Americans seem quite ready to speak the same way. It might suggest we think the same way. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. And for more on Britain's linguistic invasion, go to theworld.org. Zoom in on the Indian Ocean now for our geo-quiz. We're looking for an island nation. Its neighbors to the southwest are the Maldives, and the island we're in search of offers an interesting example of how plants change the world. Back when it was under Dutch control, there were valuable cinnamon plantations across the island. In the 19th century, the economy shifted, and the British wanted a more profitable crop, coffee. So they cleared thousands of acres of rainforest to cultivate coffee on the island. You've heard of the gold rush? Well, this was the coffee rush, really. But then out of nowhere came a blight, coffee leaf rust, a fungal disease, and entire plantations withered. What happened next, though, is a little surprising. In 1824, another plant was introduced, this one from China, and today this island is the world's fourth largest producer of this plant and the delicious brewed drink that comes from it. So name the plant, the variety, or the country. The answer is coming up. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, coming up on The World, trying to make sense of a gruesome attack on the streets of London. And later, a best-selling Nigerian writer on her latest protagonist. I wanted to write a a female character who's not necessarily easy to fall in love with. She's prickly, she's complex, and I love female characters who are like that. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. President Obama said today that the United States stands with Britain against violent extremism and terror. That was the president's response to the brutal murder of a British soldier in the Woolwich section of London yesterday. The soldier was hacked to death in the middle of a street by two men who then invited horrified onlookers to record the scene. In recordings made with cell phone cameras, one of the men is heard explaining why they did it. He said it was in retaliation for British soldiers killing Muslims in Afghanistan. Shortly afterward, both suspects were shot and wounded by police, and they're under arrest now in separate hospitals. Today, Prime Minister David Cameron condemned the attackers, saying they had betrayed their religion of Islam. This was not just an attack on Britain and on the British way of life. It was also a betrayal of Islam and of the Muslim communities who give so much to our country. There is nothing in Islam that justifies this truly dreadful act. Ken Livingston is a former mayor of London. He wrote about the Woolwich attack in today's Guardian newspaper, saying that terrorism has never broken London or its unity. It never will. It will fail. But Livingston admits there are some people in the city who aren't interested in unity. We had a a small far-right group, the English Defence League, stage a a little protest um, down near the scene of the killing and the local community turned on them. They find them contemptible trying to exploit a tragedy like this. And when we had the July bombings in 2005 on the underground, the tube and 52 Londoners were killed, we didn't know of a single incident where one Londoner turned on another to attack them. And that's in most shortly the most racially and religiously diverse city on earth, with the exception of New York. I mean, you, you say it was a little protest, but these far-right nationalists were, were seriously angry. Don't they represent uh, some strand of the population? It's always where a community is going through the process of change, where new arrivals are. I mean, back in 1906, the front page of our Daily Mail, one of our major newspapers, had a banner headline, Jews bring crime and disease to Britain. And broadly, every new group is a a victim of racism or or xenophobia of some kind. What about one comment I saw in the coverage today that these men who allegedly perpetrated the attack look like any other men walking down the street in London? I mean, doesn't that uh, worry you? Well, well, that's what's so dangerous about terrorists. I mean, they're not dressed in a uniform. They can pass amongst us. Some of them have been born and, and brought up in this country, and then they've been radicalised and become angry. When I was mayor, we were monitoring about 2,000 people they thought had a potential risk of getting involved in terrorist activity. But at any one time, they really focus on no more than about a couple of hundred. We've got nearly 2 million Muslims in this country. We've got a small number of you know old, white, English men that get involved in neo-Nazi groups and plan bombings and so on. Every mm. ethnic group and every religious group has got a small extremist fringe. I notice you just used the word uh, terrorist. I mean, Prime Minister David Cameron and others have already uh, labeled this attack as terrorism. Is that helpful in any way, or do you think it actually might fulfill the aims of the accused perpetrators? Well, I mean, it's, it's pointless denying it that, that the man was caught on people's cameras berating our foreign policy and the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. I think to deny that there's a foreign policy link to terrorist attacks is ridiculous. 
you, you mentioned Iraq. Another point you made in The Guardian today is that uh, the British security services had warned the British government before they and the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003 that it would make Britain a target for terrorist attacks. Do you think the day after this horrible incident is the time to be pointing fingers? Well, no. I mean, the simple reality is that we've always had some people denying that there's any link to our foreign policy or the, the war in Iraq. But I mean, those of us who were involved in you know, counter-terrorism uh, and security measures at the time, we were all warned. I mean, if you invade Iraq, it will make us a target for terrorism. I mean, there's nothing particularly surprising about that. Former Mayor of London, Ken Livingston, thank you. Thank you. Government sources in London have told the BBC that both suspects were already known to British security services before yesterday's attack. But as the investigation continues, there's a debate brewing in London and elsewhere as to whether this brutal murder of a British soldier can be labeled a terrorist attack. Mark Urban is defense editor for the BBC program Newsnight. Mark, this wasn't 9-11. It made many of us here in the States, though, especially in Boston, think of the Sarnayev brothers, the alleged suspects of the Boston Marathon bombings. I mean, what to you was this attack in London in, in Woolwich yesterday? I think it's a little problematic to use the word terrorism. For many people, that's undoubtedly what it was. But many of the things that we would normally use as hallmarks of terrorist attacks were not really present here. So, for example, one striking difference from the Boston attack was that these people did not aim to harm citizens randomly, if you like. It wasn't like the attacks we had in July 2005, where 51 people died on London's mass transportation systems. In this case, they attacked a soldier. If you like, if there was a terror effect, it came from who did it, the kind of people, uh, urban youth, call them what you will, young men, who you might find on any street corner, and how they did it with knives and a car, things that are omnipresent, if you like, don't require any kind of... uh, criminal checks or anything like that to obtain, and a conspiracy of of which type can be put together incredibly rapidly. So in a sense, to me, this is more hate crime. The victim chosen because of his identity, even something he was wearing, may have been significant in it. The kind of thing one might see in an inner city situation elsewhere, but of course with a political overtone. I mean, if the goal of terrorism, though, is to instill fear, part of the goal, didn't this attack yesterday do that? Honestly, I'm not sure that it did in the mass of people. And once again, this this is a difference from what happened in Boston. Because of the way the victim was chosen, is it possible people in the armed forces had fear instilled in them? Yes, I think it is. Is it possible that the general population, regardless of colour, creed or whatever, had it instilled in them in the way that happened when we had those bombs in 2005 on the subway? I don't think so. And in fact, it was revealing that members of the public approached these people after they'd committed this crime Mm. in a situation where I think most of us might think we'd be far too frightened to go near somebody with a blood-soaked knife, remonstrated with them and uh, told them they were wrong. It sounds like what you're saying is what happened yesterday in London was a single act of senseless violence rather than an act of terrorism. Um, The lone wolf angle is kind of being explored by many at the moment, that these two guys were somehow radicalized and acting on their own. I mean, how does that kind of change the way you see the the event yesterday? 
I don't want to make uh, to make light of the political aspect of the crime. I mean, hate crime is often political, isn't it? It might be someone with a homophobic or a racist impulse, something like that. That that is a, a form of politics, however dysfunctional, that has uh, played into that person's motivation. And in this case, definitely, this was a political act. It was political murder. The problem, I think, in in seeking to understand and counter this is we don't know exactly who these people may have told about what they had in mind. But what we can surmise pretty easily is that when you compare it, for example, to the type of plot that produced those bombs on the subway system in 2005, this was not networked. By that I mean they did not go to a foreign country as far as we can understand to get trained in how to make bombs. They didn't have to accumulate the raw materials in making bombs. They weren't, as far as we know, directed from outside the country to do this, and they wouldn't have to be, if you like. That's something similar to the Tsarnaev brothers in Boston. They were self-radicalised, if you like, and they were able to do what they did with readily available materials. Now, Mm. the effect of all of that is it vastly reduces the chance of our internal intelligence service, MI5, or the police to detect that this might have happened before it happened. Because, of course, if they're not travelling, if they're not contacting uh, kingpins, financiers, these kind of people, these all reduce the possibilities for detecting what's going to happen in the conspiracy that's afoot. What does it mean that the authorities had these two men on some kind of watch list? Well... This is an important point, and once again, one doesn't want to make light of the fact that many people clearly do see this as a terrorist crime. The problem with that is, though, while I think there's a natural desire to find out, well, couldn't something have been done to stop these people, is that thousands of people are on these lists, and there's a resource question about can you do comprehensive surveillance of all of these people all of the time, There's the unnetworked nature of it that we've been talking about, that even if they were under surveillance, in a conspiracy just involving a handful of people like this, would they even show up if you were listening to them? It's going to be very hard, I think, for the law enforcement authorities and the security service to answer to some people's satisfaction. At least one of the Sarnaya brothers was on a watch list and also slipped through the cracks. Mark, you've covered such events as as the horrific uh, murder in Woolwich yesterday for a long time. How does this affect you personally, the, this one yesterday? I think the really memorable and shocking thing about what happened yesterday were those statements given to people using their cell phones mm. as video cameras by somebody with blood on their hands and knives in their hands, trying to justify what had just happened there on the street. And that was shocking. I mean, we've got used to martyrdom videos, this kind of thing. There's almost a grammar of them. But this was quite different, a type of immediate attempt to justify an act of political murder in the streets with everything still happening around those people. So in that, that's where the shock comes from, I think the way that as a piece of awful political theatre, it was stage-managed by the people who conducted it. Mark Urban is diplomatic and defense editor for BBC's Newsnight. He's also a military historian. Mark, thanks so much for speaking with us. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Marco.
So I love coffee in moderation, and because it's an industrial, multi-billion-dollar global business, I try and buy from the small coffee growers and the organic coffee growers. Try and do my part. Know what I mean? Well, I may have to adjust my habits thanks to a certain type of fungus. It's looking set to hit Central America, where, as you know, coffee is king. James McWilliams writes about this fungus called coffee leaf rust. In the Atlantic Online, and James, describe what coffee leaf rust, this fungus, looks like when it actually attacks a coffee plant. Well, it's kind of an orange, yellowish dust that accumulates under the coffee leaf, preventing the uh, bean from growing. Primarily because it it suffocates the plant. It literally prevents the plant from breathing. How alarmed should we coffee drinkers be? You know, I'm not going to predict the botanical future, but. Many of the people that I interviewed for the story did talk about a perfect storm kind of converging on the region. Many of them did mention the possibility of a devastating impact. And kind of frustrating aspect of the rust is it can be controlled effectively with a number of synthetic fungicides. And so, in one sense, that poses something of a challenge of getting these fungicides to growers in Central America in a way that they can afford it and use them and apply them. You know, I should add here, I don't like the idea one bit. Of having to use any sort of chemical in agriculture, but the reality is, if you know, as consumers, if we want access to high-quality coffee, it's unavoidable. This is a reality. We could be、uh, looking at a situation in Central America that's quite dire. Is there any strategy right now? Can farmers fight back? Well, there are short-term and long-term strategies, and the long-term strategies have focused on creating varieties that can effectively. Evade the coffee leaf fungus. This takes a while. I mean, it can take ten to fifteen years, but it works. The country of Colombia has effectively avoided coffee leaf rust because they are planting these、uh, resistant varieties. The short-term solutions, and you know, maybe a better word than solution would be treatment. But the the, the short-term treatment, unfortunately, is going to have to involve the applications of、uh, synthetic pesticides that. Have for the most part been proven to work very well. James, are you assuming that organic coffee growers are just going to have to take chemical preventive measures and give up their organic status for a few years? Well, the organic designation is hard earned. It's not something that growers are going to give up easily. And I mean, one of the things that I suggest as a possibility is, you know, down the road,、uh, hopefully in the near future, maybe amending organic standards to make exceptions for these kind of circumstances. I mean, this coffee leaf. Rust outbreak was due to an absolutely unusual amount of rain in the last few years, and there should be loopholes, gaps in place that allow growers to maintain their organic designation, but perhaps with very strict regulations applied again quite judiciously these fungicides that are currently off limits. You teach history at Texas State University, so you're in a pretty good position to look to the past for lessons. Coffee leaf rust hit coffee plantations on an island in the Indian Ocean back in the 19th century. Tell us that story. It originated somewhere in East Africa, and it made its way to the island of Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, in 1861, where there was a thriving coffee industry. And in a matter of seven years, it had wiped out. The entire industry, and it was in the ashes of that industry that plantation owners there began to grow tea. And so, in many ways, when we talk about Ceylon tea, we're talking about tea that grew from the ashes of coffee that had been destroyed by the coffee、uh, leaf rust. Well, as good as Ceylon tea is, we hope that Central America doesn't have to rely on, on that option. 
James McWilliams teaches history at Texas State University. He writes about the coffee leaf rust in the Atlantic online. James, thanks for your time. Thank you, Marco. Again, Sri Lanka, formerly Ceylon, is the answer to the quiz today. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. The novel Americana comes out in the U.S. this month. In England, it's already on the bestseller list. The author is Nigerian writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She splits her time between the U.S. and Nigeria, and since she's here in the U.S. now, she stopped by our studio to talk about her new book. It's a classic love story with a global twist. The main characters, Obinze and Ifemelu, meet as kids in Nigeria. They fall in love at first sight. But then hardships in the country split them apart, and they get separated, winding up continents apart, in fact. Ifemelu tries to make a new life in America, but upon returning home to Nigeria years later, she finds that she has become an Americana. I asked Adichie to explain what that means. It's one of those slightly you know, mocking, playful ways of referring to somebody who's been to the U.S. and who suddenly comes back and pretends no longer to understand Igbo or Yoruba and who suddenly has a fake American accent. The book is a story about race and identity. I mean, you said, though, that you've wanted to write about race in America in the past, but you hadn't felt ready until now. Why is that? I had been making all of these observations and making notes because I came to the U.S. and became fascinated by race. It was such a new thing to me. And I wanted to write about it, but it just didn't feel right. I I think I wanted to be ready. Well, you certainly seemed ready because there's a scene kind of right at the beginning of the book in a beauty salon in Trenton, New Jersey. There's a confluence of several layers of race and identity. You've got Ifemelu from Nigeria. There are more recently arrived Africans from Guinea and other parts of uh, French-speaking West Africa. There are black Americans from time to time. I assume that's not a coincidence in your storytelling. What, what does that salon represent? Well, first of all, I'm very much interested in hair. But I wanted to write about race, which I'm interested in, by which I mean I should clarify skin color, because that's what's new to me. Coming to the U.S. for me was to discover not only that I was black, but the different ways of being black. And so in the hair salon, I wanted to just explore the idea of Africa. There's a connection between Ifemelo and the Senegalese and then the woman from Mali, but also this discord. You know, I wanted to just <laughs> explore that stew of, <laughs> of layers. Do, does that kind of dissonance also exist in Nigeria between Igbo and Yoruba people? I mean, do they see layers of blackness that... We, we might not here in the U.S. Race is so immediate and it's about how you look. But ethnicity is more subtle. You can't necessarily tell who's Yoruba or Igbo by looking at them. There are kind of issues of class that suddenly come into it as well. Yeah, of course. Class complicates everything. I mean, class complicates even race. I mean, class complicates ethnicity as well in Nigeria. So I've often joked about how in Nigeria, the sort of the Nigerian oligarchy class, mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. What matters is, you know, we all sort of go to, I don't know, Switzerland together, whatever. <laughs> but then you go down um, economically and you have these communities in which people are fighting one another and because ostensibly it's supposed to be about ethnicity. So it's, it's interesting. I think class complicates all of that. I don't want to turn this into a dark and somber interview, but I'm really curious to hear your take on what's happening with Boko Haram because it's n- not really in the mental orbit of the characters in the book. Uh, you're right. I suppose it's not in the mental orbit. And I think even that is telling because Boko Haram until very recently was not in the mental orbit of many people in southern Nigeria. Boko Haram, I think most of us saw as this craziness going on in the north, which would somehow peter out, and it hasn't. I feel a sense of of helpless rage and sadness about what's happening. And I'm also really unhappy about what the Nigerian government is doing. 
I don't know what the answer is. I wish I did. So let me shift gears. You grew up in a middle-class family. You were, as we say in the U.S., a faculty brat. Your father was a professor, your mother a registrar at the university in Nsuka, yes. Nigeria. Uh, you came to America. You even had a fellowship at Princeton, just like Ifemalu. Your book's a work of fiction, but how much of your own experience influenced the events in uh, Ifemalu's life? I've used bits of myself, obviously, but my life isn't as interesting. <laughs> no, I can't and, believe no, really. that. And I find Ifemalu just much more interesting than I find myself, quite frankly. And Are you writing in experiences to Ifemalu's life that you wish you yourself had gone through? Some, mm. yes. It's very clever because that's a lot of my writing often is about what I long for. Right. Also, I wanted to write a, a female character who's not necessarily easy to fall in love with. She's prickly, she's complex, and I love female characters who are like that. So Philadelphia, Brooklyn, Princeton, you've been steeped in Western culture. What do Nigerians who haven't had those experiences think of you? When I go back to my hometown, I'm the person who wants to speak only Igbo. And the people in my ancestral hometown want to speak English. <laughs> well, there's a source of tension right there. <laughs> yes. Uh. And sometimes they're disappointed. They say to me, wait, you just come back from America and, and you want to speak Igbo and why? Right. So are you mindful of how Nigerians perceive you and are you worried that they'll see you as Americanized and not as Nigerian as they are? I don't really think I'm, I'm Americanized. I mean, I like America. America seeped itself under my skin in small mm. ways. Small things such as my friends telling me, stop asking for steamed vegetables in restaurants. Nobody does steamed vegetables in Nigeria. <laughs> right. Well, there's this moment where Ifemalu is like wondering where the vegetarian restaurant is and kind of feeling guilty that she's even thinking that. Yes, because, you know, Nigerians, vegetarian, no, we don't do that. Meat is essential. <laughs> Let me ask you about language. It's another theme in the book that comes up many times. There's one point where Ifemalu, who's just arrived in the U.S., is reprimanded by her cousin, Auntie Uju for speaking Igbo with uh, her son, Dike. Two languages will confuse him, she says to Ifemalu. Um, and, and that just struck me as a phrase that you often hear from immigrants to the U.S. And it's sad. I think it's very sad. I grew up very easily bilingual. And it's, and it's something I feel very passionately about. So I think a lot of my work, I find a way to throw it in, which is my way of saying, let's keep our languages, let's keep them flourishing, especially Igbo, which is my language, and I love it. And it's, it's dying. Mm. It's dying out. Middle-class families everywhere are not teaching their children how to speak Igbo. So it's just English. And in some ways, I understand that immigrant anxiety. You want your child to succeed. So if it means pretending that this child doesn't have another culture, well, let's do that. Mm. But then, of course, what's interesting is that the same parents are quite happy to have the children learn French. Mm. So, Chimamanda, we began by speaking about uh, the, the meaning of the name Americana. What does your own name mean, Chimamanda? My name literally means, my God will not fall down, Chim Amanda. In Igbo cosmology, the Chi is sort of, it's, it's kind of like an individual God. Each person has an individual guiding spirit, which is the Chi. So to say that my own Chi will never fall down, it's, you know, it's rather a nice name to carry around in the world. <laughs> Finally, I don't want to let you go without asking you about the loss of the great writer Chino Achebe. What are your own memories of him, and how much did he play a role in your being a writer? His work played a big, big role in my being not a writer, but the writer that I am. And until I read Chino Achebe, I thought the books were not really about my experience. And then I read Arrow of God, which remains one of my favorite novels. And suddenly I just felt that my reality, my experience was worthy of literature. And I actually met him only three times. I thought he was just a lovely man, a man of great integrity, uh, not only a good writer, but a good human being.
Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's latest novel is called Americana. It comes out this month. Thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us. Thank you for having me. By the way, the late Nigerian writer Chinua Achebe, who died in March here in Boston, was finally laid to rest today in his hometown in the eastern part of Nigeria. You can hear Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie describing her relationship with Achebe. That's at theworld.org. And that's all from us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art, by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.